welcome to the Head to Heal podcast, where you'll go head over heels learning about how the body and the brain work together to either feed disease or fight it. I'm your host, Jordana Sade, certified holistic nutritionist and founder of The Mindful Clinic. With a background in nutrition, behavioral neuropsychology, and hypnosis, I'm going to walk you through the root cause of your symptoms and disordered behaviors. The body has an innate ability to heal. No one is destined for illness, and most, if not all, disorders can be reversed. Come with me as we develop a new understanding of how you can use your head to heal and truly thrive. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Head to Heal podcast. I'm your host, Jordana Sade, certified holistic nutritionist, hypnotherapist, and founder of The Mindful Clinic. As always, I want to preface this episode by saying that I am not a medical doctor and you should always seek help from a physician before beginning any new health regime. Okay, guys, I'm super excited about this solo episode. It's been a while since it's been really just you and I here, which has been really helpful, you know, as being a new mom. It's been really nice to be able to interview other professionals and to understand the way that they practice. But this is really like my field house. And so I knew that I needed to be bringing you guys this information from myself. So I want to start off by saying that I'm currently prepping to do my thesis in my last year of school. So this is my own research. It's very exciting. I've been preparing for this for a while. And my topic is around food disorder. So specifically like eating psychopathology. So binge eating disorder and food addiction. And what I would like to see is if the typical treatments for addictions. So I'm specifically going to be looking into psychedelic therapy. Obviously, this is the mindful clinic. But can that psychedelic therapy and alternative treatments basically generalize to things like food disorders? If we can use them for alcoholism, can we use them now for food disorders? So there's so many differences between like substance abuse and food addiction. And I am going to generalize here when I talk about binge eating disorder and food addiction in the sense where I know that actually I just did a poll on my Instagram and I know that a lot of you guys actually do not identify with binge eating disorder or food addiction. And the majority of you actually identify with emotional eating or a snacking problem. And this isn't to say that I'm trying to label you, but just for the purpose of this episode, I'm going to generalize any any type of loss of control around food to fall into the category of eating psychopathology, so binge eating disorder or food addiction, all right? Because it's actually really hard to be able to identify, is this a disorder or is this a habit or whatever? But ultimately at the root of it is this tendency to engage in a behavior despite knowing the consequences, right? So this is like where addiction lies. And I'm really fascinated. I'm I'm so fascinated by this human tendency to self-sabotage, right? Because if we know the long-term consequences, but we still do the behavior anyways, this is what actually points to a dysregulation in the nervous system. And this is really important from from a neuroscience perspective, but also from a clinical perspective and how we we are able to treat and work through this, right? So first of all, I want to just say that I'm doing a lot of research, okay? So I'm doing my literary review right now, my lit review. So basically what I'm required to do is I'm required to go and look at all of the already peer-reviewed journals and decide what's already been written about eating psychopathology and what that means. And so as I was doing my research, I came across a lot of themes and I thought it was really interesting to be able to talk to you guys about this. Because I think this is going to really help you to identify, is this something that you fall into? And is this an area that you actually can 
come out of. And I mean, obviously, spoil alert, anyone can change. You know, there are people who are doing like heroin or whatever. If any, literally at any point in time, you can always change your life. And this just happens to be, I find, one of the most debilitating disorders to have because it really it affects every area of your life you know with drugs it's like very cut and dry we know that this drug is killing you it's like making you poor it's ruined your family life you've now divorced etc but with food it's kind of hidden in the sense where it's something we don't really talk about I find that now too it's being villainized because we have this whole body positivity movement and like eat whatever you want and empowering women and while that's all fine and true we also want to understand when we are are sabotaging our health, our success, and our happiness. So I really wanted to bring this topic to you guys because I'm super fired up about this research and basically common themes that I've seen and heard other neuroscientists talk about. So we are going to start off by saying that the origin of developing an eating psychopathology is not something that's like fully agreed upon. Okay. So there are lots of different reasons why we can develop any type of pathology but when it comes to eating, there are there hasn't been one discussion, one peer-reviewed journal, one like route that says this is how we it develops. Okay. But there is a lot of information and informal discussions that points to basically like a three-stage process. It's not just like you wake up one day and you have binge eating disorder, right? Because food is something that we have from baby, like from the moment we're born, we need food to survive. So It's not like, you know, you try heroin the first time and you're totally hooked. It's like, it's a very specific process. And from the research, it's basically about three steps. So I'm going to tell you about those three steps and how it happens. It's not like an overnight thing. You don't, you know, have an overindulgent meal and then all of a sudden you're a binge eater, right? There has to have like the perfect formula or the perfect storm in order to develop it. So anyways, we're going to talk about that three-step process. And we're also going to talk about, I mean, of course, some neuroscience. So some parts of the nervous system that are actually contributing to this tendency to eat when you're not hungry or to overeat or lose control around food. So like I said before, I'm really fascinated with all behaviors that are repeated despite knowing the negative consequences, because this is what leads to or points to the fact that there is a nervous system imbalance, or as I like to call it in my practice, a wiring issue. We need to understand that the brain is just like a bunch of wires. It's just like a big pile of patterns. And so if we have this wiring issue, a lot of the time these things are happening in the subconscious mind. So you're not like waking up in the morning and saying like, I'm going to like fucking eat a whole box of donuts today and like cry about it later. I mean, sometimes that happens, but oftentimes you wake up and you're like, today is a new day. It's going to be a fresh start. And then the next thing you know, you've eaten the whole box of donuts and you're like, oh, start again tomorrow. Right. So it's not a conscious decision that you wake up and you're like, hey, I want to be obese. I also want to highlight the connection between obesity and binge eating disorder or food addiction or eating psychopathology. And there's an obvious link, of course, because when we're overeating, it's going to lead to something like obesity. But I just want to say for all of you guys listening, just to be very clear that, you know, you can have eating psychopathology and not be obese. I have a lot of clients who are not obese and also binge eat. However, there is in more cases than not the link between obesity and eating psychopathology, or at least just eating psychopathology and being overweight. So if you do not identify with being obese, that's totally fine. You can still have an eating psychopathology or you can still have binge eating disorder or a food addiction. 
Yeah. So, and then also too, we can have obesity without having an eating disorder, right? So it's really important to just highlight that. But when we think about something like obesity or the tendency to lose control around food, there are certain parts of the nervous system that we need to highlight. So first of all, the nucleus accumbens is like this main area of the brain that deals with the reward center. So anytime we engage in any behavior that is somewhat rewarding, it activates that nucleus accumbens and we are motivated to do more of that. So this is the area that occurs when we engage in any behavior. So this could be like obtaining food, obtaining substances. It could be like ticks, like a nervous tick, like coughing or like OCD tendencies. It could be shopping. It could be sex. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's all activating this nucleus accumbens in the nervous system. And all of the motivation to engage in a behavior is done because there is a reward. So even in behavioral psychology, when we look at like the fathers of behavioral psychology, we're talking B.F. Skinner here and John B. Watson, right? These are like the fathers of operant conditioning. Human beings literally never, ever, ever repeat a behavior unless it serves a purpose. And when we talk about purpose or function of the behavior, we're often talking about what that reward is. Okay, so... I want to kind of highlight a few st of studies that I've come across and that I'm using in my literature review. So I'll just talk about a couple of them briefly, but basically a lot of different neuroscientists or researchers have different ideas of where obesity, binge eating disorder, food addiction might come from. But like I said, it's usually kind of boiled down to like this three-step process. So in this one article, this is by Wiss, Avina and Gold, and it was written in 2020. They basically state that, you know, chronic stress is going to dysregulate the reward system in the brain, which leads to addiction-like eating and contributes to obesity, right? So we have the physical, like, nervous system wiring problem or wiring issue that comes from something like chronic stress. They actually looked deeper into it, and they had this really interesting study with rodents where they found that, like, when they enriched the environment, so this means putting the rodents in a larger space, making it more interesting, more stimulating, including novel objects, it actually reduced sugar-seeking behavior in those rodents, which is kind of interesting, right? Because we all know, like, you know, there's genetic disposition, which I think is kind of bullshit. And, you know, is it nature or nurture? But the actual physical environment that you're in can either inhibit your progress or can make you more successful, right? So I thought that was really interesting. And then the other one that I want to, the other point that I want to talk about from this specific study is that alterations in the amygdala, and we're going to talk about this later, but the amygdala circuitry is a function resulting from early life adversity. So early life adversity is just a fancy way of saying trauma, right? Like big T trauma, small T trauma, bullying, car crash, doesn't really matter. Even self-rejection is traumatic. So this early life adversity, so alterations in the amygdala circuitry resulting from early life adversity were not diminished when the stressor was removed. So, you know, you have this traumatic event or you have this early life adversary and the brain is changed. Okay. And then when that adversity is removed, the brain does not get better. Like it's changed kind of quote unquote forever. Obviously we can change the brain even after the age of 25, which is something I do in my practice all the time with my clients. But this is really interesting to understand because unless we kind of intervene, the nervous system isn't going to change. It's going to rely in these deep rooted patterns. I've probably said this a hundred times, but you know, if you picture the brain as like a deep wooded forest, as soon as you like make a path in the forest, you walk on a path, it becomes easier and easier to walk on that same path, right? It's almost like you're digging a groove. 
it's more easy to walk on that path and to like bushwhack through the forest. So, you know, the change or the early life adversary is creating a deep rooted pattern. And then your brain is just kind of going through it over and over and over again, because it's like, first of all, related to survival, the brain is like, I need to know this to survive, but also because it's now easier to replay that path than it is to create a new one. So That was the first study. And then the second study I want to talk about is by Hardy et al. And this was in 2018. And this was actually a comparison of food addiction and substance abuse, because there's a lot of information, a lot of articles and research on substance abuse and like the origin of substance abuse and the treatment for substance abuse. And there are a few articles, but still articles on food addiction on its own and the origin and et cetera. But there are not a lot of articles that actually compare the two. So This article was really interesting, and they said that food addiction has been associated with heightened impulsivity, similar to what's been described as individuals with substance abuse disorder, as they are both associated with emotional dysregulation. So when we don't know how to regulate our emotions properly, our brain will often search for something to make it feel better. The second point that I want to talk about here is engaging in maladaptive behaviors like substance abuse and overconsumption of food have both been described as coping mechanisms for dealing with distress emotions associated with psychopathology, including depression, PTSD, anxiety, trauma, etc. So this kind of like proves that, you know, one of the origin places or one of the original places where all of these like disordered behaviors start is from this chronic stress or this traumatic situation. And it's actually just a coping mechanism. So your brain perceives it as like, this is keeping me safe, even though it might be like slowly killing you. And then the third point that I want to talk about is that food addiction and substance abuse groups would have similar patterns of emotional dysregulation, psychopathology, and traumatic exposure. Specifically, they predicted that the more severe the emotional dysregulation, depression, et cetera, would be observed in a more severe food addiction right? So this is just to say that like, if the trauma was really bad, then food addiction is going to be worse. Substance abuse is going to be worse. I actually disagree with that point because I mean, trauma is all relative. So like for me, part of my trauma was like a kid calling me fat when I was eight. And like people who have been like, I have many clients who have been sexually abused, whose parents have died, parents been incarcerated. And like, here I am being like, I was made fun of in the playground. And you know, as much as I can like laugh at myself for that, the truth is my brain doesn't really know the difference between like, I'm in immediate danger running from a bear or like I feel unlovable right now, right? So this is really important to understand that it doesn't really matter what the trauma is. It's how the brain perceives it, okay? Another interesting fact is that actual rats, so rats are going to continue to seek food despite being shocked. So here we have an experiment with, it's obviously we can't shock human beings, but we have an animal experiment where rats are continually shocked while seeking food and they still do it anyway. So this is a perfect example of like, we know the negative consequences, but we still do it anyways. And this is only in rats who have had this nucleus accumbens um, part of the brain being stimulated in, in a specific way to like give them a predisposition to addiction. Okay. And this kind of comes down to really instant gratification versus long-term pleasure. So if you're one of my clients, you've heard me talk a lot about this, where, you know, we get, we often go for that instant gratification versus long-term pleasure. So I'm going to, like, I tell my clients this all the time, and I'm going to tell you guys as well, but if you are thinking about engaging in a behavior, you want to ask yourself, does this behavior make me feel better before or after? 
And often behaviors that are instantly gratifying have long-term consequences. So if the behavior is going to make you feel really good before, it's like, yes, I want to eat a whole box of donuts. Yum. That's like really exciting before. But if you ask yourself, is that going to make me feel better after? You're like, oh, you think about how it's going to feel afterwards. And you're like, yikes, that's not going to feel good. Right. If you think about, you know, like getting up and going to work every day, you're like, oh, you know, dragging your feet whole eight hour day. But how are you going to feel after? Right. After when you get that paycheck. It's like, who, right? So all of the behaviors that are going to have instant gratification often have long-term consequences. And we want to kind of wire the brain to be more focused on long-term pleasure versus instant gratification. But then the question comes, like, how do we even get wired for instant gratification, right? And I'm going to get into that. Because obviously there are some people, like I'm sure you know people in your life, and like I'm actually a perfect example of this because I've been on both ends of the spectrum many, many, many times, where, you know, I will do those behaviors over like those mundane and like grilling tasks to get that long-term pleasure. Like I, even with a baby, my baby's four months old. I wake up at five every day. I'm at the gym by six. All right. I do that five days a week. This isn't to be like, wow, I'm a superhero, but like, I know that how I'm going to feel after I go to the gym is more important than like the fact that I don't want to go when I wake up at five. Like, yeah, I'm tired, but I fucking do it anyways. (laughs) Like, feel a lot better afterwards, you know? And so that's a perfect example of how, you know, you put in, it's not instantly gratifying, but the long-term pleasure, it's worth it, right? But I've also been on the other side of the coin where I've given into instant gratification. And one of those examples that I can use with you right now that is like very vulnerable for me to talk about, and like I don't even want to admit it or say it out loud, is I picked up a fucking dirty habit and I need to, I need to get rid of it, okay? We went to a concert in August and we went to see Metric. And I like, when I drink, sometimes I'll have a few cigarettes. Keep in mind, I used to be like a huge smoker. Like I would go through packs a day from age 13 to like 22 when I got pregnant. And then after that, I was like prided myself in being able to be a social smoker. I drink maybe three times a year, four maximum. And when I drink, I I look for a cigarette. I do that. And then the next day I wake up and I don't even think about them. I don't want them. So anyways, we're going to this metric concert. And I was like, you know what? Why don't I get myself a vape? fucking worst decision I've ever made. Like literally it's sitting in my desk and every day I wake up and I'm like, I know I shouldn't do this. I know the long-term consequences. It was so hard for me to quit before. This is like, I'm so health conscious. How do I keep doing this? But it's, it's like, I look for it for that immediate hit and I sacrifice the long-term consequences. Right. Um, And I'm saying this to you, obviously, for full disclosure, for you guys to also know that I'm fucking human too, man. Like, and and I will work through this, obviously, but it is important to recognize. And it's a perfect example of where you can see that short-term gratification versus long-term pleasure. And even somebody with all of my knowledge, with all of my years of behavior change and working with other people, I still struggle with stuff like this, right? So a lot of the time, and we're going to talk about why this is, the substances and the things that we are motivated to obtain are wired to release a lot of dopamine. So let's get into it. So I originally said at the beginning of this episode that there are three kind of steps for how we develop a binge eating disorder. So the three steps are, the first one is you have to have a predisposition. We all have it. We'll talk about that in a second. The second step is having a stressful event or ongoing stress or trauma. So it's that predisposition plus the trauma 
plus the final thing, which is the humiliation. And this is the body image issue, right? And so it has to be the perfect storm of all three things. And I'm going to go through them now. So we're going to start at the beginning. So this predisposition that I'm talking about, we all have it, have it. And this predisposition is to favor highly palatable foods. This isn't even your fault, okay? We're just human beings and we are manipulated by the government and the people who make these highly palatable foods that are literally designed to be delicious. Like they are literally designed to be the most addictive, the mo- the tastiest things, the, the thing to stimulate the nervous system so much that you wanna go back and buy it, right? I've never, ever, ever had somebody in my practice being addicted to broccoli, Like I've never had somebody in my practice being like, I just lose control every time I eat broccoli. Like that never ever happens. So it's usually, oh, I lose, I I have one chip and I eat the whole bag. I have one bite of the cookie and I eat five more. Like it's never with these like nor neutrally palatable foods. All right. So we are all, it's, it's a flawed system in the sense where we are all have a predisposition to favor these highly palatable foods because they are designed this way. Okay, they're designed to hijack the nervous system. Now, that alone is actually not going to lead to an addiction or binge eating disorder. So but first, I want to understand exactly. I want you to understand exactly what's happening in the nervous system. So the main neurotransmitter here that these foods are trying to manipulate is dopamine. I've talked so much about dopamine. So if this is like, you know, reminder or if this is repetitive, repetition is important because that's how you encode information. So you're welcome. So, but anyways, these foods are designed to release large, large amounts of dopamine and dopamine is the molecule of more. It's not the molecule of pleasure. Most people think that with dopamine, you know, it's like, it's pleasurable. We feel like we're engaging in pleasure. It's actually, it's the molecule of more. It's the molecule of motivation. So when our brain releases a bunch of dopamine, it motivates us to engage in more of that behavior. So what happens here is that when we release dopamine, we have like, we have pleasure and then simultaneously we have pain or craving, right? And so that pain is categorized as craving. So as we release dopamine, it's like, "Mm, that's good. And I want more. You never have like a bite of a cookie and you're like, I'm good, right? You're like, oh yeah, that's good. Give me more, give me more, give me more. Because the brain is now wired to seek more of that behavior. And what's actually happening from a chemical perspective is when we release large amounts of dopamine, it's like it dumps dopamine. And if you can picture like a balancing scale, when we dump dopamine, we dump it all out on one side and we're now we're left with a void, right? And so that void is actually going to feel like pain. Like it's, it's, you're, it's, you're not going to feel good. You're going to feel like something's missing. And so if you go about your day in this like void state, you're just looking for that next hit. And you might look for it in like sex from a partner. You might look for it in shopping. You might look for it in food or substances or in creating chaos in your environment to get attention. Like it can look different for everybody. But at the end of the day, we're releasing tons of dopamine and then we're left with this void. And so that void, like it's, especially if you have food in front of you, food is like one of the most it is the most accessible drug. It's not one of the most accessible drugs. It's the most accessible drug. Drug. And part of the problem is like when we're like a six-year-old kid, we don't have most six-year-old kids don't have access to like cocaine, right? So, but they have lots of access to sugar. They have lots of access to like food and donuts. And often the foods that are like more cost-effective or cheaper are the ones that are manipulated this way because they're just using chemicals. So 
it's a whole issue. And like, obviously it's like an issue with the system too, like with the man. So we can, that's important to understand. But what we want to do is we want to practice behaviors that release dopamine on a neutral schedule. And if you are interested in this, I've done many podcasts about this. You can just go back to either the neuroscience of addiction, or I'm pretty sure I talked about this in eating and emotion as well, which was my second podcast, I believe. But anyways, so The first step here to developing a binge eating disorder, eating psychopathology is this predisposition we all have to highly palatable foods. That alone is not going to lead you to eating psychopathology. We know lots of people who have a funnel cake at the X or whatever, and like don't continue to want more, right? One of the reasons why I knew I had a real issue, and this was like more than just a habit, was I would go to things like Christmas dinner or events with friends and we would eat the same food and I would come home and want more like, and I would want, almost want to closet eat it. And my, I remember being with like my friends, they'd be like, Oh, I'm so stuffed. I'm so full. And I'm like, how, like, I want more of that. Right. And so this is how, you know, you're no longer responding to hunger and full signals. Like those foods are, are very highly caloric, right? So they're definitely giving you enough energy. (laughs) So it's no longer an issue of like calories in, calories out. There's something bigger going on here. Okay. The second step is this stressful event, this ongoing stress or trauma. Okay. So the areas of the brain that are specific to this is the amygdala. I told you we'd come back to that. And the amygdala has a very adaptive job. So the amygdala's job is to basically give you your stress response. The amygdala fires and we're like in immediate danger. It's related to survival, it's adaptation, etc. So anyways, when we have a stressful event or we go through trauma, the amygdala fires. And because the amygdala is a very primitive part of the brain, this is like all animals have the amygdala. When we have the amygdala firing, it shuts down the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is where we have all of our executive functioning. This is where we have like our impulse control. This is like what makes us human, right? This prefrontal cortex is what helps us with like executive functioning, planning, developing, being able to like observe and become self-aware. It's all in the prefrontal cortex. But the amygdala, when it fires, when it's like stress response, prefrontal cortex shuts down. So we actually don't have the ability to have impulse control or at least at at the same level as we would if the prefrontal cortex was awake, basically. So this stressful event or ongoing trauma is going to be really important because it's what kind of fires the amygdala. The prefrontal cortex turns off and then there's no critical thinking here, which leads to impulsivity. And this is really, it's also really interesting to understand that, you know, eating or eating psychopathology, like binge eating disorder, food addiction, is not related to like hypervigilance or hypovigilance. You know, like some people say, some people are anxious eaters. So if the brain is hyperactive, they'll eat. And if they're depressed or the brain is underactive, they'll eat. And so one of the reasons why this is such a hard disease or disorder to treat is that we can't just give you a pill that's going to work on hypervigilance or hypovigilance, right? If we give you the anti-anxiety pill because you're a stress eater, you might still eat in that depressed state or like, I don't want to say depressed, but in that, like, if the stress is down, you might still eat. Like it's not reliant on the fact that like these, these neurochemicals are here and these ones aren't right. And so it's a really, really hard one to treat because it happens in all emotions. And so we can't just give like an SSRI and like call it a day and think it'll get better. It's much deeper than that. And so this is why it's so interesting to me because it's like, you know, it's, it's very treatment resistant, which is why we have to look at other ways of treating it, right? So 
medication that would bring down the anxiety, there still might be a prevalence of binge eating. And antidepressants that would bring you up, there would still have a prevalence of binge eating. So it's not like about hypervigilance or hypovigilance, which I think is super interesting. And then in this like stressful event, ongoing trauma part of it or step, I kind of alluded to this before, but it's also important to know that like that trauma is going to change the brain, right? It's going to create a deep groove in the nervous system. It's going to make you feel like you're running from danger. Something's wrong. The brain doesn't know the difference between financial stress, emotional stress, or like I'm running away from a bear stress. It's just the chemicals that are released into the bloodstream and and we respond to it. We tell ourselves stories about it. So literally once this like major trauma, stressful event happens, if we're not taught how to emotionally regulate, and often this happens in childhood when a child does not know how to emotionally regulate, we just end up like reaching for something to turn that off. So food, specifically sweet food, is designed to tell our nervous system, I'm safe. Like if we think about from an evolution perspective, when we were hunters and gatherers, our main job was to find food. So when we are chewing, especially sweet food, because typically if we came across something sweet, it was okay for us. Like it, it would, we would survive. But if we came across something bitter, it could have been poisonous. So we're just wired for like the sweet taste anyways. But if we came across food, if we're physically chewing, it tells the primitive brain, I'm going to live another day. And the amygdala is a primitive part of the brain. So this is all happening like in the subconscious. You're not like feeling stressed and you're like, oh, okay, now I'm going to go and reach for this. It just happens, right? So really interesting. So the first one, predisposition, highly palatable foods. Second one is the stressful event, the ongoing trauma, et cetera, which is going to essentially create that amygdala, amygdala stimulation. And you're going to want to reach for something to turn that off to tell you you're, you're safe, right? Obviously temporarily. And this is like instant gratification versus long-term pleasure because like no, no meal is going to solve your issue of like not getting a job, right? Your no meal is going to, no chocolate bar is going to solve your issue of like not being able to find a romantic partner. Like it's not actually solving the problem. It's just like you're temporarily telling the brain, hey, I'm safe. Okay, and the final step to actually developing this eating psychopathology, because those two alone would not develop binge eating disorder necessarily, but the final step is this humiliation. So I've actually started working with my own naturopath, and she's amazing. Shout out to Dr. Taggy. If you guys are listening to this and you want her information, she'll change your fucking life. I like do not subscribe to naturopaths normally, not because I have anything against them, but because I know a lot of the same information as them, but she's just next level. She's like, she's an intuitive. She's like a medical medium. She's incredible. But anyways, I started working with Dr. Taggy and she, I was talking about, you know, my, my life. And as a kid, I was overweight and kind of a lot of all of my problems started then. And she was like, well, it's because of the humiliation wound. And the humili- like, when we feel humiliated, we have our body energetically has a tendency to hold on to weight because it's like trying to protect us. Like it's a physical barrier. But in the case of this, like developing and eating psychopathological disorder, the humiliation is usually around these body image issues. So because our eating habits are so closely related to our weight, which is something we wear on the outside, like when you smoke a cigarette, you can't necessarily see the damage it's doing to your lungs. We know it is, and we do it anyways. It's on the cigarette packs, but like you're not fucking wearing it. And like 
right, right out in the open, right? And because the human tendency, human nature is like, all we really want is just to be loved and accepted. That's all we need for security. When we feel like a part of us is unattractive, it tells the nervous system, I'm not safe here. I'm not lovable. I'm not worthy. And this is a really big problem. And this is why when binge eating is related to like obesity, it's an even, it's an even bigger problem because we're wearing it literally outright. And so let's say you engage in a behavior where you're like, I'm eating the donut and I can't stop, whatever. Not only are you responding to that predisposition, it's a highly palatable food, you might be turning off that stress response, but you're also telling yourself, fuck, why am I doing this? This is going to make me fat. This isn't in line with my goals. I'm a failure. Here I go again. You're telling yourself, I'm going to be unlovable. No one's going to love me. I'm fat. I'm unattractive. You're telling yourself this story of humiliation and you feel guilt and shame about it, which actually perpetuates the cycle. Because once you identify as somebody who's a failure, a fat binge eater, whatever, your behavior is going to match your deepest beliefs about yourself, not your goals and your dreams. All right. So (laughs) I don't even know if I took a breath there. That was a lot of information, but hopefully you guys are still with me. Now we're going to talk about some of the treatments and things that we can do. But before we get into that, I just want to say that like, and I use this example with addictions all the time with people who struggle with addictions, but because the reward is immediate, it's instant gratification. It's really hard to change that behavior for something that's going to offer long-term pleasure. For, because of the way that the brain is wired. So for example, if you had a drug addict who was like homeless on the streets, let's say, and you were like, in three years, you can have your own house, you could be, you could have your own job, you could have a stable relationship, you can get your kids back in custody, etc. Or you can take this drug, which feels really good right now. Like because the, the reinforcement is immediate, the schedule of reinforcement is immediate, the brain is wired to seek that like, ease, right? They, the brain wants it and it wants it right now. And it wants it to be immediate on that same schedule. And that's why like when we do things like talk therapy, it doesn't necessarily work for binge eating disorder or, or addictions. It's helpful. It's a tool for sure, but it's not the, the thing that's going to change the brain. Right. And so it all has to do with these like schedules of reinforcement and release, or that's one part of it anyways. Okay, so let's talk about some treatments or things that we can do. So basically, (laughs) I was listening to this podcast, The Huberman Lab. I love Andrew Huberman. He's amazing. But he was interviewing this neuroscientist who specializes in this, like, but he's a brain surgeon. And so they're literally doing brain surgery for eating psychopathology, for binge eating disorder and food addiction. And like, okay, like, this is really, really cool research. And I'm so fucking interested. But like, you don't need to go that far. (laughs) Like you don't need to cut open your skull and get brain surgery. We can actually fix this problem without it. But it's it's very cool stuff. So I don't want to like talk down to it. Like I think it's, if you're interested in this stuff, it's worth looking into. And basically what it's going to be doing is it's going to be like stimulating the nucleus accumbens at specific times to prevent the craving from taking over. Because what's happening is like there's a trigger, which is the craving, and we're responding to that craving by eating. And so we need to kind of create a block, a disconnect between the craving and the response. Okay. 
So there's literal brain surgery. All right. The second thing is there are some supplements that help. Of course, it's not like a magic pill. It really depends on who you are. So it's hard to give like a specific recommendation. Like if you have like deficiencies, we need to correct those deficiencies for your brain to even think properly. But some just right off the top of my head, L-tyrosine is a good one because L-tyrosine is going to help to support dopamine levels. The only thing is we don't want to take it for too long because then we release too much dopamine and we feel that dopamine void effect, right? And then there's 5-HTP, which helps to convert to serotonin. So if we are creating more serotonin, we're more likely to feel satiated. So that 5-HTP is really important. Just note that if you're taking an SSRI, please, please, please work with a practitioner, whether it's a holistic one or your doctor, because a lot of these supplements cannot be taken with an SSRI. So an antidepressant. And you can also do psychedelic therapy, which is what I, my research is in and what I use with my clients all the time. And it's super fucking effective and it works really well. But again, not a magic pill, right? It has to be in conjunction with a bunch of stuff. CBT therapy is really beneficial, especially because when it's like, there are many different facets of CBT therapy, but I find behavioral activation in combination of like the thought processes and like cognitive disassociation to be really effective with my clients, specifically with this eating disorder. Because like, we can't just focus on the thoughts. Like if the thoughts are, I'm a failure, I'm a fat, I'm, I'm a piece of shit. It's hard to reframe those thoughts when we, we truly feel that way. Sometimes it's easier to work actually with the behavior. And as we do the behavior, we change the way the brain thinks, right? Repetition is really important. Hypnosis is great. I use hypnosis in my practice. That's why I'm a hypnotherapist specifically to get into that subconscious. But again, alone, not effective enough. All right. And then the last thing that I want to say is like connect to your soul. So this sounds like really, really woo woo, but you know, we are born into this world as very intuitive beings. Like we're very connected with who we are and we grow up and people always tell us, don't do this. Don't do that. Stop eating this way. You're not good enough. Like, I don't like you. I don't want to play with you, whatever. Don't wear that. Yeah. So basically we hide parts of ourselves because we want to be accepted and we want to be loved. And Part of this issue is that we become so disconnected from who we are that we can't really be intuitive with anything. Like the desire to eat, it comes from the autonomic nervous system. It comes from the same place that like tells our heart to beat and tells us to go to the bathroom. And we literally, we don't say we're like intuitively shitting. I say that all the time. Like we like, so actually these processes of like reaching for food and that desire to eat should be very intuitive and it should be exactly what you need and nothing more. But when we become so disconnected from who we are, it becomes very difficult to actually trust and listen to ourselves. So we want to reconnect with our soul. And my naturopath, that same practitioner that talked about the humility wound with me, she said that all eating disorders are soul disorders, right? When we are so disconnected from our soul, it results with us being disconnected with all of our intuitive processes. And I will say that pretty much every client that I have who struggles with like binge eating disorder or whatever is also feels very lost and feels like they're not aligned and feels like they're not thriving. And this all comes from like being disconnected from your soul. So really important to invest in the people you need to invest in to be able to like reestablish that connection or just like daily practices. But I would just say like, it's so much, it, people are so worried about like making investments in themselves because they're like afraid they're going to fail and whatever. But I'm like, you can literally, like I've been studying this for over 10 years now. And my, my practice is, yeah, I've seen over 350 women at this point. Like, like I kind of know what I'm doing. And, and so for me, like if there's an area that I need help with, like I'm investing in the person who can help me get it the fastest. I'm not like online researching. How do I do this? Because 
somebody has spent dedicated their entire life to figure that out to make it easy for you. So, and honestly, when you learn to invest in yourself, the universe just totally rewards you. So some of my favorite practitioners for this like soul work, again, would be Dr. Taggy. She's incredible, but I also love Margot. I know I've mentioned her many times on this podcast. If you do my program, I just literally include working with Margot in the price of my program because she's so important. So Margot's like a real earth angel. And then I also work with a psychic slash energy healer, who's amazing. So anyways, if you're interested in any of those practitioners, you can always hit me up. I'm extremely approachable and happy to give out recommendations. I also would like shout the names of like my healthcare crew from the top of the rooftops because they literally keep me functioning on a daily basis. And I often have to rely on that extra help. So don't be afraid to reach out. So the last thing that I want to say is obviously this is what my program is designed to do. So I have actually yet to find somebody that I couldn't help stop binge eating altogether. I know that is like a very bold statement, but I, I, it's a hundred percent true. I totally mean it. When we talk about like weight loss, there are many variations that like make people reach their goals faster or not. But when it actually comes to binge eating, I've yet to work with somebody who actually did the program and communicated with me the entire time who still binge eats, which is incredible. And Ultimately, what it will require from you on your end is being being willing to communicate and being willing to do the inner work and invest in yourself and just like listen to me. But this is all just to say that like I'm in my last enrollment period anyways right now as I'm recording this it's September 27th and I start my last group on October 1st and I have three spots left. So by the time you're listening to this, it's probably already closed, but you can always hit me up in January. I hope that this information was really valuable. Obviously, as you can see, I'm super passionate about it. I really, really, really love this work. I just think that human behavior is the coolest thing. Like why, who doesn't want to know why we do the things we do, right? So anyways, I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions, you can always hit me up on any of my socials. Don't forget to like and subscribe and you can share this episode with somebody who needs it. Bye.